When the storm clouds are riding through a winter sky, sail away. Q&A, adapted by Greg Merton, from the novel Queer and Alone by James Strauss, performed by Greg Merton. When you feel your someone is orchestrated wrong, why should you prolong your stay? When the wind and the weather blow your dream sky high, sail away, sail away, sail away. Where do people go in this small world? Where could we even begin to hide? I was in Rome when I was told I was to die. I have often thought, since my voyage to Hong Kong, since my beating and hospitalization, since my subsequent flight across the Pacific to sunny California and my current career in Hollywood, of what that poor, wretched, overworked Roman domestic woman had said to me. She began, innocently enough, by warning me that all my associates would betray me and I would soon find myself alone in a queer land, homeless and heartbroken. Oh, maybe she was just another innocent psychic, but I don't care. She couldn't have known anything of my past. I'm sure none of that ancient history got into the Italian papers. She tightened her grip and said... You will die soon, Mr. Desmond. The sooner the better. She couldn't have been part of a hit squad. I was just too far-fetched. And she couldn't possibly have heard of me in connection with what happened stateside. I was never mentioned anywhere as being anything more than a material witness. You might say I was hounded out of town. But better let me give you a few of the details. My name is Desmond Farquhar. And that is my given name. I just hate people who make it up as they go along. And let me say right here and now that I have nothing but nothing to do with the world of work. I have just enough money to get along, and that is that. It's a trust. I trust I'm not proceeding too wildly for you to keep up. I left Rome, got on a big boat via Bremerhaven, and off we steamed for Hong Kong with a clutch of fellow travelers. There was a cleric there named Murchison. He was a real spook, and I suspect, in secret, a torch. Miss Deborah Springman was another such. She was the serious young lady on board the boat. What a horror. And thick as a thief with a reform pastor. One day she'd take canvas and easel to the tip of the bow and pose with her bristling little brush for all who wished to ogle her, clad only in the scantiest of South Pacific bikini. And they thought themselves so moral. Well, the possibility for sin seemed endless to me. And the good cleric, it seems, just couldn't keep it in his pants. It has always been thus and so with this churchy type. Needless to say, I was very, very careful when it came to my dealings with the both of them. For all I knew, they were unwittings, or professional entrappers, or both. Then there was Cayman. Little more than a parvenu from Key Biscayne or Boca Raton, a man of perfectly deadly jocosity. From the first day out, he would hang on the bar and grumble at every decent remark. Ha, 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 that's a good one. Do you know any more funny stories? 
They, the Caymans, Ernest and his charming wife Nanette, were two who quite took my fancy at first. Nanette was a dreadfully lonely and neurotic woman, but was of the two much the more active and attractive and out to while the hours away. However, at this point we were neither close nor involved the way we would eventually become. I'll tell you right now, it turned slightly ugly in the end. And then there was Levis Chase with his pretty little girlfriend, Mary Gay. They were young and in love and would spoon forever on the poop. There is a funny story about Levis Chase and Mary Gay. It seems they had a devil of a time a few days out, for apparently he had forgotten his supply of prophylactic device in his rush to embark, and she wouldn't or couldn't use an insect or a plunger or whatever they call those things women insert for safety. He ran about the boat for days, wildly trying to borrow or devise some easement, as it were. I could just imagine the scene in their stateroom. She'd be sprawled on her back, her legs raised and spread above her like eagle wings, her porcine little slit dripping and pulsing with the beat of her heart under her enormous breasts, rolling and sloshing about on her chest as our ship slashed into the crests of waves, her eager twitching finger poised for selfish pleasure. And he, he'd be rummaging through his chest of drawers for a piece of goat rubber or veal appendix. I'm dead sure it was rather sad. I invited him into my stateroom one afternoon for sherry and said to him quite confidentially, Look, Levis, old boy, why don't you just knock up the dear young thing and have done with it? I understand the medical facilities in Hong Kong are first rate. His face registered disbelief. So I went further. What I mean is, why not go all the way? Or even better, why not dump your silly little boy dough just inside the tradesman's entrance, as they say? Your normal, healthy volunteer can stand that sort of penetration without undue trauma. You know what I mean. Her back door. The dirt track. The bread rack. Do you follow me at all? I was fairly desperate to communicate anything at this point. Well, he looked at me as if I were the queerest thing he had ever seen on this man's earth. He soon stopped coming by for Sherry, which was perfectly all right with me, for by that time I was in it up to my ears with Miss Deborah Springman. Anyway, I was bored witless and quite adrift in my psyche. I would lie awake nights in my cabin dreading the dreams I knew would follow my fall into lifeless sleep. There would I lie, trying in idleness to recapture some of the mystery of life, which had already shown me so much pain and sorrow, had revealed such an ugly slice of myself, my smallness, my aberrant ways, my willful lack of faith, and adventure through so much violence and death which had taken everything good and innocent and beautiful and grounded into the dust beneath my feet. And here I was headed for Hong Kong, flesh pot of the East. I woke the next morning with the feeling I had escaped some cruel and unusual fate. It must have been something in my dreams which so harrowed me. I was excited and nervous, maybe even a little scared. Miss Springman came by my table at lunch the very next day and said, without any provocation at all, 
Look, Desmond, or whatever your name is, I don't know who you are, and I don't know who you think you are, and I don't care. But the walls are thin between these cabins, so I know what you're up to, what you do, and with whom you do it when you're up all night claiming you can't sleep. Don't try anything like that with me, you understand, you dirty bum. I've got your number. You're idle and bored, and you think you can fiddle with people just like a car radio. Well, try it with me, and you'll fry, Buster. I warn you, I don't forgive, and I don't forget. It was terrible to hear her driven to such extremity of hard feeling against me. And right away, I started thinking she had said, I don't defecate and I don't fatigue. <laughs> there was no doubt she wished in the depths of her mind to engage me in one or more of the infinite varieties of erotic intimacy. When I realized her fantasy of our encounter perhaps involved the manipulation of fecal debris, I just about flipped my lid. Can't you just imagine me pushing her black apples about those rolling decks in a deadly game of scatological shuffleboard? It's just a good thing for her. She never asked me to perform my palsied little waltz in her bedpan. I would have given her an earful. But I just gave her a stare that let her know in no uncertain terms she would never get under my skin. It was then she started stomping about the dining room in those absurd alligator cowboy toe shoes she wore. Such an obvious play for attention. I just pushed my custard aside and left the table. I have never traveled with a more disagreeable group of people. But then people always say this when they're on the road to nowhere. Let them talk till they turn blue in the face. I have nothing to hide and could stand naked before my maker even today. late February, and we had inched our way southward down the west coast of Africa toward Cape Town. I must say, Cape Town was all that could be expected and more, so much more. The captain called us to the dining room where he announced the vessel had been accepted for repair by a Cape Town dry docker. We were to be lodged in private homes. It turned out I was to stay with a certain Mr. Smuts and his family. He's not, by the way, the Mr. Smuts, but just another Mr. Smuts. They, the Smuts, had me met at the dock by a chauffeur, a very sweet young man named Steve. We drove through the crowded streets that might have been the very streets trod by Mahatma Gandhi himself during his extended stay in this community of souls. Such a brave little man, so various in his desires. But I think he spent most of his time inland on all kinds of minority business. There are, in fact, over half a million Indian subcontinentals down there, somewhere. Steve seemed shy and innocent, qualities I found very charmingly mated in him. We stopped several times so police officers could look into the car to see if I was all right. I found the national police so handsome in their paramilitary get-ups. They'd smile and gesture in my direction. Oh, things were hopping down there with so many people interested in blowing it to smithereens. As we approached the center of town, I saw many black people walking right on the same sidewalk, if not exactly arm in arm, with white people. And here I had heard that they kept the races totally separate. <laughs> so much for that piece of misinformation. The Smuts house itself was a sprawling single-story ranch affair. Mr. and Mrs. Smuts seemed fairly friendly. Shortly, I was shown to my rooms to await dinner, which was at eight. 
I lay down on the bed and fell into a deep sleep, while in this sleep I dreamt that dream of a horrible bull elephant goring, tusks flashing in a tumult, derigering the roar. It was a horror. I awoke at 6.45, barely in time for me to shower and dress for dinner. Dinner was very pleasant. There daughter was there and turned out to be a ravishing, dark-haired, dark-eyed young beauty in a nicely tapered worsted shift, breathing just a hint of bosom. I found myself quite bewitched by Tess's feminine appeal. However, she was not talkative, but I wasn't bothered at all, nor did I have any negative feelings. Up in my rooms, I had taken just a tad of amphetamine, as it always makes me just a little more charming and brings out the lighter side. My doctor prescribed it for me to deal with a minor weight problem I seemed to be having. So I had no trouble at all launching into a conversation with the table at large. Later, Mr. Smuts invited me into the library for a brandy, and the two women disappeared to the upper rooms to watch Dallas on television. The library was very cleverly decorated with books. He assumed an awesomely solemn face and said, You're probably concerned with the black question. Well, let me say this. They are all homosexual. Who? I stammered. Where? Well, I know for a fact that what he said couldn't possibly be true because no population is ever more than 51% homosexual at any one time. I mumbled some gibberish, excused myself, and went directly to my rooms. The next morning, I realized I was in something of a pickle out there at the Smuts' house. I don't know how they knew, but they seemed certain Tess had spent the night in my rooms. Mrs. Smuts told me she and Mr. Smuts had been called away on urgent business to the Transvaal, and Tess was returning to school in Rhodesia. It would be necessary, she said, to vacate their house this very day. I packed, and she dropped me at the front door of the Cape Hilton, and I bid her a fond adieu. I checked in speedily and was shown to my room by a bellhop named Johnson, who was, believe this or not, an American Negro. I was so happy to be there, because I just love room service. I find nothing quite so civilized as having a BLT and fries wheeled in on a zinc salver. After lunch, I walked around town for a few hours, totally unafraid, amongst the smiling faces and all those bicycles. I went into a place called the Susie Wong and got a seat at an uncomfortable booth at the end of a long plastic bar. A favorite trick, or icebreaker practiced by the professional here is to give the unsuspecting patron a stink finger under the guise of holding his hand. One of these girls sat down at my table and said, Hi, G.I. Having a few idle dollars and nothing else in my dance book, I'll admit I took some comfort with her in a small room on the second floor. I really couldn't resist. But I'm sure you do this every day with the secretary or the milkman or whatever you call them. It's only the traveler is so cut off from ordinary life. 
In any case, to make a short story as brief as possible, she ground the round, as they say, neither an open pit nor a stranglehold. I could just see her below me, dark, invisible, somehow menacing. We flew on steadily, she just clawing me occasionally with her long, curved, and lacquered fingernails. Then there was a quick swoop with a bump and then a mountain of stars and a carpet of golden jewels in the velvet night. A still of her final jactitation is forever frozen in my mind. We stood up a moment later and shook hands. She was a very sweet woman, and if she had any children, I'm sure she was a first-class mother. Back at the Cape Hilton, Nanette Cayman was waiting for me. I said, you're not really fair to me, Nanette. You know that, don't you? You shouldn't use me like this, tempt me, and take advantage of my weakness. We older women really aren't all that attractive, are we, Desmond? Don't change the subject. Anyway, what attracts me has absolutely nothing to do with the theoretics of attraction. You do fancy yourself, don't you, Mr. Desmond? If only you could imagine something that wasn't somehow snarky, Des, darling, I'm sure you'd go far. I assure you, I'll go no farther than public transport or private carriage can carry me. You know how I abhor walking. Oh, you silly. You don't like to walk because your legs are so thin and misshapen. Are you sure you didn't have a touch of polio in your childhood? I could never properly appreciate an ad hominem. You mean ad homo, don't you, Desi? I could see right from there it was going to be a difficult night before sailing. Nanette went into the bathroom. There was a big trinitron in the corner of my room. I crossed to it and flipped on the state channel. I believe Nanette had a bowel movement because when she came out she was dressed only in her slip. She just stood there, basking in the afterglow of laxative action. Nanette had hitched her slip up above her knees, but I was firm in my determination to ignore her. By the end of it all, Nanette had her hand down in my trousers and forced me to ejaculate into the folds of her lingerie. Oh, God, I wish you hadn't done that, Nanette. Oh, don't be mad, Desi. I know I'm vain, but that's what it's all about. Don't you know that? Doddering old amnesiac, I thought to myself. I couldn't believe I was being forced to endure her company. My mind raced through a list of younger, more vivacious acquaintances. Many of them dead already, it was true, too true. God knows what they thought of me and what they thought they'd do with me, once they'd had their fill of having their way with me. I began to conceive quite unconsciously, and innocently, I might add, a notion to kill them off. It was just a notion, mind you. Nothing I would ever act on. I'm not homicidal, after all. It was the furthest thing from my mind. Nanette stripped me of my clothing and bathed me in cool water until I fell into a fitful sleep. I was raving, she told me later, about all sorts of animals, a common subject in dreams, about chickens and pigs and snakes and long corridors of incarcerated females criminally insane. I remember her still, her smell, her touch, her presence, just as dawn was breaking in whispering into my ear and running a cool terry about my torso. 
Perhaps in that long night of fever and vomiting, I gave her some window into the nightmare which haunts me, the charnel house of my private knowledge, where the very tissues of my physical being struggle to survive. The sad truth of the matter was that I was a tortured poor soul on the very brink of instability. Oh, I don't worry about going crazy anymore. But images of my previous life, my wild youth as an unqualified wastrel, innumerable imagined injustices and presumed slights coursed through my brain like a liquid formed from mustard seeds. What fools we mortals be. I have experienced great mental anguish, which I trust is not too, too transparent, and felt I was fleeing some extraordinary fate awaiting me in my native land. But what was I to do? We were virtual prisoners on the high seas, and it seemed as if forever. In actual fact, it was only 4 February 1979, and we were again headed for Hong Kong. Now, there will be those who say they have never heard of a certain Rory McAllister. Everything changed for me when he came aboard. That's where I first laid eyes on this gorgeous human being. I mean an absolutely perfect body, a marvelous and touching battlefield of a face, an upper torso like a splitting wedge, a perfect 28 waist. After we sailed, as we were cruising innocently enough into the Indian Ocean, Deb and Rory became, as they say, regular sex partners. I decided from that point on to stick more to myself. I went into confinement right then and there, but before I did, I had a nice little chat with Deborah in the lounge. Deborah, for some reason, was again interested in what she called my beliefs. You know what I mean. In theater, they're called props and lie about the stage to be fiddled with in absent moments when the actor forgets his line or when the actress feels she's no longer sufficiently attractive after time and lights have melted her grease paint. She said, Desmond, let me just say this to you as a new but not unfriendly acquaintance. I feel, and don't take this wrong, that I can never get to know you as anything more than a casual contact on the boat because I feel that you don't believe anything. It's that you're so negative. So negative? That's rich. Why, I believe in everything. Do you really, Desmond? Because if you did, that would be wonderful. Tell me exactly what you do believe. You're probably wondering about my religious affiliation. Well, I want to say this and put it very simply. Jesus is Lord, at least in Western industrial civilization. Oh, Des, I think we might be friends after all. You put up a big front, but underneath I think you're just like the rest of us. Well, tell me what you think. About what? Well, about me, for instance. I knew this would be good for a laugh. I always love to hear what people think just to know how wrong they are. I'll tell you what, Des. I'll tell you what I first thought when I saw you on board. I thought you were very handsome, but conceited, and maybe, well, not quite like a normal kind of guy. Not like a normal guy? How absurd. Of course I'm like a normal guy. Good Lord, what more evidence could you want? Oh, I know, I know. But then, when I first saw you coming up the gangplank, I thought you might be a creep. I hope you're not offended, because I don't think that now. 
a creep. How droll. Really? I don't think anyone had ever called me a creep before. And some might here be tempted to say she was falling for me, falling for me in a big way. If only she had allowed herself to be more honest, things might have worked out differently. Most women want to be more honest, but very few succeed. After we sailed, I saw no one for days except the boys who served me my food. I sat in the dark. It was terrible. I'd cry occasionally. When I finally emerged from my room as we were sailing down the inner curve of Sumatra through the Straits of Malacca, we had something of a navigational crisis, one that could have flared into a mutiny or intra-passenger strife had it not been for the cooler heads in our midst. Tensions were heightened almost to the breaking point. Some sought relief in alcohol, others in native hemp, some in transcendental alienation many in sexual promiscuity. The captain attempted to reassure us in a combination of mime and pigeon, which only increased anxiety and drove some of the less stable to the very edge of panic. Deborah wanted to go straight to Bali. She threatened to jump overboard if she didn't get to Bali immediately. She claimed she was getting old and more than likely had a female cancer, as did so many of her generation, etc., etc. It was just awful. With tears and screaming and foam tearing at her clothing. A real snit fit. What a terrible thing to be a woman. Or to be thought a woman. I suggested she be forcibly confined, but finally everyone just gave up and we set a course for Bali. Now, Indonesia is the only country I have ever visited where an actual turd was thrown at my head. Oh, it was a small turd, mind you, of no more mass than an Italian meatball and of a similar texture, but um, human excrement nonetheless. I didn't let it stand in the way of my enjoyment either, for these people can't possibly know what they are doing to every conceivable tourist, and in truth, though the missile did hit me, I am convinced it was thrown at one of the women. After dinner, and just before we sailed... An Indonesian inspector, a Mr. Sully, paid me an unexpected visit. He stood in the door to my room with his hat in his hand, somewhat crestfallen, and told me the most outrageous story of crime on the street. It seems a certain desperado had savagely murdered and mutilated a gentleman of the first rank under the most sordid of circumstances. Apparently, the killer had lured his victim into a compromised situation, shaving team, after having subverted his morals in a place of public entertainment. There, in the home of this same victim, after engaging in a variety of unnatural acts, he had murdered him, clove his male member in two lengthwise slices, squashed his testicles beneath a jackboot, and taken everything of value. Need I say more? Just tell me this, Mr. Sully, I asked. What sort of unimaginable desperation would drive a man to do something like that? 
You are a very unusual man, Mr. Desmond. You seem to understand so well the criminal mentality. Oh, I'm a rank amateur, I assured him. Imagine what I could do if I were forced by circumstance to throw my whole self into it. Later that night, Rory came to my room in a severe depression. It always happened when he'd drink too much. I suggested, in a friendly way, that perhaps his continuous diddling of Deborah had had something to do with it. These must be the DTs, I said to myself, when he confronted me suddenly face to face. Just let me show it to you once, Diz. Just let me show you what it can do. Go ahead, take hold of it. It won't bite you, for God's sake. Watch it now. And he was off before I knew what to do. I said, what, Buck, having a little problem with the magic wand? But I know he didn't hear me. And who but a monstrosity with ice water in his veins and a stone for a heart could deny a plea so pathetic, I ask you. And this is the full story of how I unwillingly and then hesitantly agreed to service Rory, if that were his last life's desire. Well, after he had dropped his trousers to the floor and forced me to grasp it firmly in my hands, I couldn't help but notice his little rod, proud and erect for all the world, like a naval cadet. Look at that, I said. I held the stiff little thing, what I thought was a safe distance, away from me, telling him under no circumstances to splatter my person. But you know what a promise is worth at a time like that. It wasn't really as horrible as it sounds. Feeling it pulse and throb in one's hand gives one such a sense of life's ominous, fruitful forces. He humped about on tiptoes a bit, the apple itself growing quite large and bulbous, and then he went squirt right away, great gobs of jism spraying up and down my pant leg and dripping on the floor. That annoyed me. He stood still for a moment and moaned softly. Then he tried to kiss me, but I brushed him aside. I have never liked kissing men and don't know why the custom persists. He mumbled his thanks from the doorway and left. I read for a while after cleaning up and then fell into a good, sound sleep. As per what usually happens, the next day he wanted me to read some of his poetry. He slipped me a sheaf of it as I was leaving the dining room and then left me with nothing more than a meaningful glance. I tried to read it, but it was so turgid I finally had to give up. It read like a fairy's mind Kampf. I was so disappointed. I went to my stateroom and stripped to my boxer shorts. I was weary and glum, to say the least. I mean, think of all I had been forced to endure the conspiratorial ways of my fellow travelers, those terrible and nasty detectives, and their talk of murder and mutilation. I was pushed quite over the line and had gone through enough to justify anything. I might thereafter have done even what people say I might have done. I lay in a sweaty half-sleep for days on end. I lay there for as long as it took the captain to navigate his way into Victoria Harbor. At last I had arrived in Hong Kong and felt so justified just to have come this far. I took rooms in the native quarter. It was in a relatively less expensive section of town, needless to say. 
They'll never find me here, I thought to myself. The neighborhood didn't look dangerous, some show business types and various young professionals on the way up. Nothing glamorous, mind you, but I didn't know exactly how long I'd be able to stay. I was alone, perhaps a month, maybe more. It could have been a very great period of time for all I cared. Even here, there were very many very, very interesting people. I'll never forget the little candy girl who had a stall down a little side street where she made those little diverticulum. And the taste as she squeezed them out one by one, back-breaking labor. And, of course, there was a missionary who lived on the third floor. And there was a Miss Wu on the second. And there was a young Chinese man on the fourth floor with his Mongolian girlfriend. She was from Ulan Bator. We spent a good deal of time together after I was beaten so badly. Just another word or two about the toilets. Fortunately, they had comfortable seats. I had some trouble settling in, some binding, and then a terrible loosening, but nothing life-threatening and was soon almost as good as new and definitely on the mend. And then the dream started again. Well, thank God bullets and dreams don't kill, because if they could, I'd be dead. Hideous nightmares of murder and mutilation, of dippings in vats of boiling sugar water and other kung fu. Finally, after I had completely settled into my new life and almost completely forgotten everything and everyone, the telephone rang and woke me up. It was Deborah. She asked, with a slight catch of urgency in her voice, if I'd come right over... And I, for some crazy reason, agreed. I knocked on the door. She said, Just a minute. And then I heard her undoing some locks and chains. She opened the door wide enough for me to slip in and bolted it absurdly tight behind me. Why all the caution? I said lightly. She slipped her hand under my arm and drew me closer to herself. Now this woman was a dissembler's dissembler. And don't think I'm calling Deborah names, calling her an eco-criminal or whatever. No, I'm just trying to explain how I was so duped and bamboozled by a girl like that. Her kind. However else would I get into scenes like this except with really dumb girls? She said, Those men next door, I think they turned tricks, Desmond. I didn't know men could do that. The Caymans came by. They were very distressed about you. They said they thought you were crazy and dangerous and feared for their lives. Feared for their lives. How could they have done that? But they are very serious, Des. They think you have something to do with the tongs. The tongs? No, no, the teenage gangs, the gamblers and the pimps and the rickshaw drivers. Not the kitchen pincers. Rickshaw drivers? You know what I mean. The Green Society? I can't remember the color. Oh, I'm so frightened. What if they laugh and hoot at me? Hoot at you? Don't be silly. People don't hoot. But who? Who is this they? Some people I've met. Well, that's very mysterious. How did you meet them? Did the Caymans introduce you? But you know, Desmond, I know you know. Don't pretend you don't. If there is one thing I do not do, it is pretend I don't know what I do know, no matter how many people say the opposite is the case. What is the opposite? Oh, Des, 
I'm, I'm so confused. My hands have gotten so old since I came to China. Perhaps I should never have come. I'm overcome with fear. Danger seems to be all around me. Oh, so you're going to chicken out. Is that it, Deborah? Is that the kind of girl you are? Is that what you're made of? Stuff like that? Is that why you came to Hong Kong? Des, do you want me to blow your nose? Blow my nose? Oh, come on. That's just what people say. You know what I mean. It'll only take a minute. And besides, it's good for you. I've come to regret this little excess of flesh. If only I had known then how much she would resent it. God knows. It's not my fault she was killed. I'm not going to be held responsible. I had retired and was drawn out again. Drawn out to do a favor, to offer myself as a buffer between a woman and the world. And where did it get me? So that she could later claim to the rooftops that I had the precious gems and she was empty-handed. Drugs, diamonds, women's bodies. Is this life? What kind of a person would tell a story like that? Deborah said I stole from her. What possible motive could have possessed her to say something like that? Slander, mistaken identity. These were a few of the problems I was dealing with. And never, ever a scrap of proof. Far be it from me to dignify these charges. You can see what happens when you try to answer a charge of slander, respond to bold-faced lies, counter-presumption, etc. There is nothing fishy here. It was a matter of public record. She was slated to inherit a great deal of wealth in the form of various large bijoux, cashed for her by her early year's father in various of the eternal slums around the world. Everyone knew about it. It was now ten o'clock. I realized I had told the Caymans I would join them at their hotel for brunch sometime before noon. I had the desk clerk call their room, but they didn't respond to his buzzing. He then suggested I try the coffee shops where I found they had already eaten. I apologized for being late, but they didn't seem to mind. In fact, they didn't seem to care at all and were quite cold toward me. Cayman kept holding up objects off the table and showing them to me as if I were a precocious toddler learning names. Nanette gazed off across the harbor with a vacant stare. I said, what is the matter, Nanette? You look like a sleepwalker or a zombie or something like that. She said, what do you do when you get up in the morning, Desmond? What do you do? Who the fuck are you? Tell me, right now. Tell me. I had no idea what she was talking about and said so. Nanette mumbled, Never mind. Stood up and said they were very busy and had to be going. But where are you going? I thought, since I'm here, I could be of some use to you with your precious objects. Prior engagement. Sorry. But where are you going? We're going to Taipei. Best sex in the world there. Must have something to do with the corruption. But I'm sure you won't be lonely. You'll find some piece of chink jailbait to keep you company. They went into the elevator and out of my life forever. And I didn't even get their home address. Oh, well. (laughs) 
Returning to my rooms in a cool Pacific rain, I didn't give another thought to anything, to the trip, my memory, my tears. I half thought of ending the evening by burying a couple of cheap pearls, as they say, but I'll admit, I wasn't up to it. And alas, that was my last chance. On the walk back to my rooms, a sudden chill overtook me. Perhaps I imagined it, but the the locals seemed to scatter as I approached their little knots. The lobby of the apartment house quickly emptied as I entered. I knocked on several doors, thinking perhaps to rouse up some warm body, but there were no answers. I went to my room, slipped on my dressing gown, and sat in the cushioned bamboo chair. I was about to open a bottle of claret when I heard a kiss of crackling glass on the window behind my head. Someone had broken one of my windows. And then a knock on the door. I tensed involuntarily. Then I heard Deb's voice whispering through the mahogany. I opened quickly, and there she stood. She was not alone. Wang, the handsome, well-built, youthful Chinese man from the next room in her motel, the man she claimed not to know, stepped from the darkness. I took him for a weightlifter, judging from the size and shape of his pectoral development. I looked back to Deborah, and then I knew. You Judas cow! So you've gone over! Wang slapped me with his pistol very hard, and the first of my teeth fell from my mouth. I tried to appeal to Deborah, but she turned on me viciously. Don't talk anymore, do you hear me? Just shut up. And don't tell me what you want when what you want is a piece of turkey. I'll tell you what you want, and don't tell me it's just happening when you've got all those fingers in my pie. With this, she spit, splattering spittle across my face. I know to many this is an ultimate humiliation. I was forced to submit to several acts to which I would not voluntarily admit, committed not by Wang alone, but by Deborah as well. Having stripped me and tied my hands to the headboard, they went about their dirty work. Wang with his six-inch black plastic stuff. Deborah with her horsehair catanine tail. Wang broke into some very abusive pigeon, but Deborah begged, Don't say anything more, Wang Chung. This talk of slicing him to death by inches gives me the cold shivers. This is for them and what you did to us, you jerk-off artist. It was then she made her claim. She claims to have lost earrings and other precious stones. Well, what an unfounded claim. I'll tell you what she lost. Her virginity, that's what. And her moral stance. And I want to say right here, I didn't. Repito, I didn't filch her silly dish of precious gems, her filthy little baubles. The one she claims I stole somehow from the go-down in Kashmir, the post box in Vermont, the safe deposit in California. How would I gain access to all those places? Psychologically, the very fact that I am innocent makes the nightmare of these accusations even more paralyzing. The charges against me build up a circumstantial picture of a man who might have existed. I am not that man. But these are the charges I am forced to refute. If I'm not careful, I might fall into a trap. 
People might think I am trying to defend myself against real charges, that I slandered religion and made it hard for people to get to heaven. My fault? That I was a driveling drug addict? That I made girls cry? That I was sexually deviant? That I violated my seniors? That I had an unnatural interest in the female posterior? Slut slobber! I mean it. I'm that angry. And I remain hurt to this day. The Caymans have denied my existence, saying they merely lunched with a disturbed young man. Even though no normal person could believe such a farrago of absurd charges, mud always sticks. And the revelations, however false, may always prevent me from ever rising from the humble station into which I was born. Why, oh why, these recriminations for tourism? I am not an operative for any international police organizations. What purpose would that serve? And why would I want to cripple Cayman's mule, his beast of burden? I mean that stooge Deborah, that ringer. For jewels, you say. Who am I? The Queen of England? And where would I hide said stones when I travel so lightly? On my person? You're free to step right up and look inside my wallet. I have nothing to hide. And who says those stones of hers were worth anything to begin with? Glass, I say. Glass. I was prostrate and passed out. Before they left, of course, they had sandbagged my arms and legs, leaving shattered bone from trunk to toes and fingers, and had pushed my face well into the brown vinyl couch, smelling of my own low fear. It's a wonder I survived. And there was something worse, which I hesitate to mention. Oh, if someone could but make me whole, to think then that I, of all people, will never pass those furry gates again. Now there is nothing separating me from the black-eyed Susan girls of paradise. But as long as other men continue to get erections and go to war, I will never cease my struggle. Who does she think she is to so impugn the straight phallus of ancient mysteries? She's just a spoiled brat, and that's that. I ask you, really, what is it all worth in stressful moments? Moments of death? But enough. There I was, left chained to the door. Of course, we've all matured, though some seem to have merely sagged and rotted in place, decayed as it were. We just have to grab hold of ourselves and remember what this world wants. And, I might add, it doesn't much mind how it gets it. There is a terrible breakdown in an Occidental life which occurs no matter what you do, no matter how you live, no matter what your station be in life. There is no preparation necessary, and then it happens. After my release from the clinic, I recovered somewhat in a body cast. Then I flew direct to Hollywood after all I had suffered, I felt it was the only place I could make any real contribution. But when soon or late you recognize your fate, that will be your great Directed by David Schweitzer. 
recorded and engineered by Ben Williams at the Collapsible Hole in New York City, January 2019. Stay away, stay away, stay away.